there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. Our stories are not just there for entertainment and as a spectacle, but as something that drives um, real concrete change. I just thought, how is that relevant? This person did not live in our home, had no experience of our situation, a murder, um, and yet here they were on the front page of a respected newspaper in our in our country. Um, falsely built idea of this like blind lady scales of justice. And I was like... No, you've got to put the perpetrator up front. This is about the perpetrator and what the perpetrator does. You cry and you cry and when you're done crying, you wipe your eyes and you slap your cheeks and you get angry and you get to work. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney 2018. Made possible by the support of Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales, Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from Rights for Women. This panel is Writing Violence, Writing Change. Thanks so much for coming along. Um, Writing Violence, Writing Change is what is going to be discussed today. Uh, Obviously, this is a topic that's been across the media quite a bit in recent times uh, in reference to things such as Me Too. Uh, We have been changing a lot of perceptions around family violence and violence against women and gendered violence, but there's still a tremendous amount of work that still needs to be done. And I think today we've got a wonderful um, diversity of voices coming from many uh, different perspectives, so it is bound to be very illuminating. Now, I would like to highlight that we will be discussing uh, violence, gendered violence during this session, and that may be triggering and distressing for some of you. Please feel free to step out if it is. Um, Now, please join me in welcoming the speakers. Amani Haydar is a lawyer, artist and executive board member at Bankstown Women's Health Centre. Amani's writing and illustrations have been featured on ABC News Online and SBS Life, and her self-portrait, insert headline here, was a finalist in the Archibald Prize 2018. That's so cool. Um, Nora Haydar is a multi-platform reporter for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, based in Sydney. She currently covers New South Wales state politics for ABC News Online, television and radio platforms. Prior to joining the ABC, she was a producer at Sky News Australia. Nor has a Bachelor of Communications, Journalism from UTS. Jess Hill is a multi-award winning investigative journalist who's written about domestic violence since 2014. Her reporting on domestic violence has won two Walkley Awards, three Our Watch Awards and an Amnesty International Media Award. Jess is writing a book about domestic violence in Australia and it's going to be published in 2019. Bree Lee is an author, freelance writer and non-practising lawyer. Her first book, Eggshell Skull, is a memoir of sexism in the Australian justice system. I'm sure many of you have already read it, but if you haven't, you should really buy it after this session. It's phenomenal. And our chair is Jenna Price. She's an academic at the University of Technology in Sydney and a columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Canberra Times. She hasn't yet worked out a work-life balance and fears it might be too late to learn. Thank you.
Thank you, everyone, and welcome. So when I was putting this panel together, I thought about the things that I wanted to know uh, because I feel like um, trying to solve domestic violence has been a uh, oh, 40-year project for me. I wrote my first ever story about um, uh, Bruce and Violet Roberts in 1980. Does anyone in the room remember that case? Any person? Right. So what happened was that... Uh, the, part, the, the husband of Violet Roberts so terrorised her that eventually she and Bruce uh, killed him and fortunately, eventually, uh, she was able to be released and so was Bruce. But um, when I started writing it, it was a social justice project. I didn't really understand that uh, family violence was a, um, a huge problem in Australia. I thought it was unusual. I wrote that story because I thought um, this is... Um, the category of newsworthiness that's weird and unusual and not because it's uh, systemic, endemic um, and we can possibly make a change to stop it happening. However, here we are, 40 years on, I'm still writing these stories and I would say the change has been very little. Um, I meet people all the time who've experienced family violence and I, one of the things that really terrified me was that I can't really always know who it is or how I can help those people. And that was brought home to me a few years ago when um, a student of mine who I just thought was really wonderful wrote to her honours supervisor and said, I'm sorry I'm going to have to drop out of honours but I've got family problems. And the honours supervisor rang me and said, oh, what's happening with Noor Haydar? Why is she doing this? And I went, I have no idea but I'm pretty upset with her and I'm going to ring her and tell her off uh, because I really wanted this person to just do very well. Uh, anyhow, then I discovered at the same time that a part of a project that I'm involved with, which is called Counting Dead Women, uh, was writing the post about Noor's mum. And uh, that was why Noor had to... I'm just about to cry now, I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, Noor explained to me that that post was about her mother and that she and her sister, Amani, were... Um, uh, just couldn't go on with their lives in the way that they were currently going on with them. And so then... I felt terrible for not having any understanding, but I, I really was. Um, I'm hoping she's going to come back to honours. I would love to. <laughs> but so I invited um, Amani and Noor here because I have never before been so close to someone whose family has experienced this, and I've also never watched so so much rubbish being written about someone's experience. And I really um, am here to ask you today about what it was like seeing your life story written uh, and how you would change that. And I think I'm going to ask you first, Amani. Um, is this...? Yes, it's yeah. on. Um, I think the hardest thing when, when we first went through um, the murder was arriving at um, Sydney Hospital the next morning with our sister who had a hand injury from fighting my dad off and walking into a cafe where our mum's face was on the front page of every paper on the tables and I was sort of flipping them over so she wouldn't notice because it would be a bit too upsetting for her. So it was very, it was, I, it was, I was very quick to notice how difficult it would be to um, have what I had assumed um, was my private life um, become so public very suddenly and it was from then that I realised as well how much um, loss of control accompanies that and how you really can't direct that narrative because you're traumatised and you've got to deal with 
other issues. I was five months pregnant. I was having a, a slightly risky pregnancy. Um, I had two sisters and we needed to deal with a lot of um, personal things before we could take any kind of control or have any kind of response or input um, about what had happened and what our mum's story really was. So that for me was very um, frustrating and I kind of promised myself to eventually give myself the opportunity to be the voice for that story rather than being the subject of it. ABC now and you told your bosses there that you didn't want to write about or do you say write for broadcast yeah yeah uh, well um I was two months away from graduating from my bachelor in communications majoring in journalism when my mum was murdered um I at the time um found the reporting uncomfortable but I didn't know why I, I didn't like what I was reading, I didn't like what I was seeing in the news coverage and I almost swore off ever becoming a journalist. Two months after that, I was given an internship at Sky News, so I thought I'm going to go, I'm going to do it for two weeks, I don't want to burn any bridges, but I'll be gone after that, I don't want to be a journalist, we are horrible people. Um, I was offered a full-time job and I stayed at Sky News for two years after that and throughout those two years, I don't think a month went by without a woman dying in Australia as a result of gender-based violence. Um, I'm now working at the ABC and that has continued to happen and I, as I've sort of read more about the flaws in reporting, I've begun to realise why I felt so uncomfortable with what I was reading about my own mum and my own story. Um, and I was talking about this earlier outside. Um, one very obvious... I'm not sure if you've seen... Jane Gilmore's Fixed It headlines. Um, powerful because they juxtapose two very simple things. Reporting that we've just come to accept with what should be said when we're talking about domestic violence. Um, in, in one particular piece that was written about my family, um, I think a, a neighbour or a relative was quoted as saying my dad was a nice guy or a, or a quiet guy. And I just thought, how is that relevant? This person did not live in our home, had no experience of our situation, um, clearly had no understanding of what led to a murder, um, and yet here they were on the front page of a respected newspaper in our, in our country. Um, and so I think we need to change the way news journalism deals with domestic violence stories um, and the practices that exist within news organisations in Australia when a story, uh, when a, you know, police press release drops about um, a, a woman being murdered and what our response is and how we go about gathering that news um, because simply sending a crew out to voxy neighbours who live on that street does not give you any substantial information. It doesn't help the story and if the family doesn't want to comment, um, the next best thing isn't a neighbour who has no understanding of the um, the personal and the intricate issues that were unfolding. Thank you. Um, Bree, your book really has two strands to it. One is the experience of sexual violence, but also there's your almost theoretical experience of being a lawyer. So you were able to bring those two things together. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write Eggshell Skull? Yeah, absolutely. Basically because of... Because I had, I knew I had both levels. Um, I got to the end of my year as a judge's associate um, in the Queensland District Court, um, and 
had decided to make a complaint, um, a police complaint against a man who offended against me when I was a child and realised immediately sort of what was about to unfurl um, for the next didn't know how long. Um, I had by that stage seen about a year of of the actual inner workings of the criminal justice system from sitting in a courtroom, one new trial and a handful of new sentences every week, the vast majority of them being sex and child sex offences. Um, and there, there are very few people who go through, you know, six years of law school and then the extra requirements to get admitted and, and have experience in the industry who are then willing to speak openly and honestly about the faults in that industry. Um, and when I made the complaint and was treated abhorrently by the police, despite having pretty much um, every you know possible weapon in, in an arsenal of a, a complainant could have, literally a lawyer, um, highly educated, my dad used to be a cop, um, everything, um, supportive partner, supportive family, um, stable financial situation and still it was so awful. Um, I just knew that there were so few people who could speak to both the hyper-individual and the really true like borderline philosophical structural um, issues and um, I also was so disgusted by what I had seen that year that it didn't seem like as big a deal to me than perhaps it might, should have, um, to torch any prospect of having a legal career. If that's the way the system was, I didn't want to be um, inside of it. And I th thought long and hard about that. Um, and I decided that I thought I could make more of a difference from outside of that system than I could from inside of it. But, of course, having been inside of it, you were able to become and have become an activist for change in the system, haven't you? I do benefit from the legitimacy of the system that I try to critique. Um, I have been able to speak to people and speak about themes both because of my qualifications and because of my work experience. Um, and that's a real privilege um, but also obviously the actual lived experience of being a complainant going through from the beginning to the end of two years, a whole trial, everything. There just aren't that many people who can speak to both sides. Um, and so people who would really love to be able to automatically discredit me cannot. So Jess, uh, like me, you didn't really have um, a direct experience with uh, family violence. So what made you interested yeah, so, I mean, personally, I would prefer to listen to these three women talk rather than myself today. But um, um, And part of that is not having that lived experience. Um, I've looked at family violence now for going on four years. Um, I was actually just – I was just commissioned by the monthly. I'd done a long essay on power prices um, that they thought was quite complex. And they thought, here, have domestic violence. That's pretty complicated. And I was like, yep. It is. Um, <laughs> so, but when they first commissioned me, I'm just going to be really blunt, I'm sorry, but I was like, domestic violence, guy beating up his wife, what are you going to write 4,000 words on that about? Like, I was bored. Or at the start, I was bored and I didn't know how to make – I knew it was worthy and in that horrible journalist parlance that you have, like, oh, that's so important, oh, we should really do this, that sort of thing. So that was how I came into it. 
and it probably took me about three weeks to become utterly and completely obsessed um, with domestic violence and to realise how totally naive I had been about family violence. Um, Just that I'd never thought about it. Nobody had spoken to me about it. I didn't think I knew anyone who'd experienced it, which of course was completely untrue. Um, And the moment that I clocked the fact that this was about power and control, the whole world of it just suddenly opened up. Um, so that's that's where I came at it. And I remember there was a really telling moment for me. All along this line there's been, you know, faux pas where people have like corrected my you know, naiveties and I've just gone, wow, okay, now I'm even more interested. Um, I was at Safe Steps um, call centre in Victoria um, and I was listening to them take calls from women calling in and I said, you know, trying to sort of relate to the call operator, this is about three weeks into researching, I said, do you get frustrated when you hear from the same women who say they're going to leave but they keep on going back? And the woman just said really bluntly, no, I get frustrated when I hear that he's promised not to do it again and yet he's done it again. And I'm like, that's absolutely right. Um, <laughs> and and that that flip that I got on that then that first part of researching has informed the rest of what I've done. So foregrounding the perpetrator has been absolutely central to my work. Um, And funnel, even though that was really a big part of my philosophy of coming at this, even when I was writing the book, the first instance was to have the first chapter, the victim's experience. That's what I thought. Put the woman up front. You know, this is about the woman. And I was like, no, you've got to put the perpetrator up front. This is about the perpetrator and what the perpetrator does. Um, but that felt like such a – like it felt like gears changing just to do that, just to flip that. And every time you put men's violence against women, putting men in front of that term feels political, um, which is strange at this t- juncture. But it, it's – yeah. So so a lot of these ingrained sort of naiveties um, – uh, what I've tried to flip, not only in myself, but also tried to understand, well, what is everybody else got that's ingrained in them, the kind of common sense reactions that they have? How do we unpick those and do it in a way that's compelling and doesn't feel like you're just having to eat your vegetables or, you know, like uh, find a way to tell these stories in a way that people want to read about and they feel like it's important for them to understand our society more broadly. Thank you. So we now know what we've done. I'm interested in now knowing from each of you what you think, what change do we need and how will we affect that? So let's first of all talk about the change that we need. Can we start with you, Amani? Um, So many things. So I'm on the board at Bankstown Women's Health Centre and that's one of about 20 centres um, of its kind statewide. Um, They were born out of the women's refuge movement in the 70s and the work that they do ends up being DV related, um, the the majority of the work they do as a health centre. Um, So one of the important policy points that I try to um, raise awareness about is the impact of domestic violence on our health um, and the importance of that type of holistic approach to helping women. It's not just a criminal justice issue and I have a legal background and I know that the law alone won't solve um, these issues. In doing that, I try to connect my own personal story into my advocacy. Um, And I think that does sometimes, unfortunately, um, make the crucial difference between having people listen and not listen. Um, It's powerful to share a personal story. 
So I take the opportunity to then tie in um, legal changes that I noticed um, could be helpful through my own experience having not just been a lawyer but then sat on the other side um, as a witness um, in my dad's murder trial um, and the nuances that were in that that I had the, the privilege of a legal background to be able to observe and realise um, what was happening to victims through the legal system and the subtle um, gendering of every step. Um, so, and even things like my interactions with um, Centrelink. So I gave a speech at a, a function um, where I knew a politician would be present. Um, and I talked about the fact that I wasn't able to access um, initially my paid parental leave. I was pregnant when, when my mum was murdered. I took time off work and I fell outside of the work test by about a week. Um, and I was told that I could no longer get paid parental leave. And I was livid. <laughs> and... Um, I eventually wrote to, I guess they just didn't know who they were saying no to. <laughs> I, I wrote to Christian Porter and I wrote to my local member and I said, look, I know you don't have a legal exemption for people who are experiencing domestic violence or the ramifications of domestic violence, but I need to get my paid parental leave and I think this needs to be changed. And then I talked about that experience when my local member was present and that's um, Jason Clare. And he's done his first speech now um, trying to introduce um, a new exemption to the law that'll cover that little gap that was so painful for me that no one else would have really picked up on having not gone through it. And I just wonder how many, how many women were told no and because of the exhaustion and the fatigue and the amount of hours that goes into resisting this type of thing just didn't bother going further. The, the women who might have gone on the website and just thought, this is too complicated, I, I can't be bothered. Um, so I think for me, I, I mean, I kind of lost track of the initial question, but I think for me, it's about finding those gaps and talking about them and linking them back to our stories. Um, so our stories are not just there for entertainment and as a spectacle, but as something that drives um, real concrete change so that other women don't have to go through what, what we've been through. So I'm loving the idea of the connection between the personal story and the legal changes. So Bree, you're next. How? What do we want and how are we going to get there? Okay. Um, uh, where do I even start? Um, one of the most frustrating and one of the potentially best things about the Australian criminal justice system is that it is legislated by state. That makes it incredibly frustrating in many ways. Um, a woman can have an experience of sexual or um, physical violence in one state and if she had been X number of kilometres further north or south, will then be treated completely differently by a different system. Um, that really sucks when you live in Queensland and consent is a live issue because the legislation in Queensland is the most archaic. We have a mistake of fact defence that consistently allows defendants to be acquitted for rape cases in which consent is an issue when they have um, voluntarily got themselves intoxicated and they use that to help prove that they had an honest and reasonable belief that the complainant was consenting. Other states have now... Um, somewhat improved that definition by saying that um, recklessness is not okay or that if you get yourself drunk you can't use that to your benefit if you're the defendant. Um, it's also potentially um, a good thing that we have different legislation by different state because it makes it it should make it easier for us to advocate for change because I can stand up in Queensland and say look how much better Victoria is doing it and it didn't break the system. 
you know, look how much better they're doing it elsewhere. It's not spooky. It's not scary. We could do it too and it would be fine. It's really – it makes me optimistic to think that in that we could conceptualise the different states' jurisdictions as – as getting better, that we are con- where whichever state is lagging behind can just look to somewhere else doing it better and that there could be this sort of perpetual forward motion. Um, that's what I'm fighting for in Queensland. Uh, in Queensland, um, a few years ago, this is this, I mentioned it in, in my book, um, we had the Quentin Bryce Not Now, Not Ever report into domestic and family violence that was really comprehensive. Um, it made 140-something recommendations. So that's the level of, of you know, it, it looked at a woman's experience from from being offended against and that very first report right through to like healing years later and the follow-up services. It made 140-something recommendations and the current Labor government in Queensland has acted on over 140 of them. We have a a track record for what it looks like to take a really big issue and fucking deal with it. Um, That's what I'm fighting for at the moment because in New South Wales here, um, after the Four Corners report into Luke Lazarus and Saxon Mullins, the next morning they announced a review of of consent legislation. That's a really great start. But I've read a lot of the submissions that were made to that review and the vast majority of them are talking about the ones that come from um, organisations like Women's Legal Services, etc., are talking about um, that that's such a narrow focus. and that actually the the point of highest case attrition in any state is at the police stage. And I get emails from readers about how horrifically they've been treated in other states who don't have, um, for example, the socket system that Victoria does where they have a separately like trained and resourced department in the police for dealing with sex crimes. That's either adult or child sex crimes. Um, and so what I'm really pushing for in Queensland is a review of sex crime and that's either adult or child sex crime because a lot of the issues overlap. Of course, you would never have an issue of consent with regards to sex offending against children but a lot of the real hurdles you have around delays, around pressures for plea deals, around attitudes and behaviours of police officers who are under-trained and under-resourced, a lot of those things overlap. Um, And so that's what I'm pushing for in Queensland. Um, It is frustrating that you can't really advocate if you're looking at any area of the criminal law, you, you can't really advocate on a nationwide basis. You can advocate, you know, in terms of, of the social perspective, like how we talk about it, how we frame these issues, making sure that we talk about them. You can do that at a state level. But if you're really trying to drill down on services and the law, you have to do it state by state. Um, and so I'm starting with Queensland. No, you talked earlier about the kinds of changes you'd like to see to reporting in terms of the headlines and the quotes from the local neighbours. I don't entirely agree with that, but I'm interested to know what's the kind of good reporting on family violence that you've seen or sexual assault against women, reporting on those areas. What's the good reporting you've seen? I think good reporting, as we mentioned earlier, involves personal stories, people with lived experiences telling their story. Um, And we, we see it in longer form feature style journalism. I think domestic violence is something very difficult to do in news, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I want to answer what you asked Amani earlier about what I would like to see change because I think this plays into it um, and recognising emotional abuse 
um, as, as something as serious as financial or physical abuse. Because when I looked back at my family um, as I was sitting, I guess, in a police station hours after my, my mother had been murdered, I was shocked because I was like, yeah, giving them a statement and I couldn't think of a time that I saw him hit her. And I was just, I felt like this just didn't make sense. But in the years since, I've read so much about how emotional abuse is something we need to now recognise as a significant um, a significant form of abuse that can directly lead to murder um, and that doesn't make the perpetrator any less of a criminal. Yeah. Um, and so I think the, the struggle with reporting, though, when it's emotional abuse, is it doesn't sound as exciting in the news because this woman hasn't been, you know, admitted into hospital and, and, and those things aren't happening. So the stories are not there. And I think if we talk more about emotional abuse, we capture more of, uh, I guess, how, how widespread domestic violence is and how it manifests differently but can quite instantly lead to a death. Um, we've, we've, you know, we're, we're making ch slow changes. I think there are improvements in the way we're reporting about domestic violence and, and gender-based violence. Governments are trying, or, although not much uh, is being done. There is a 12-year um, a national plan. We're eight years into a 12-year national plan to reduce violence against women and their children. And this year we've seen five more women killed than we did last year and we're only in November. Um, my mum was 30th in a year where there were 80 women killed um, and, and in most of those cases it's by someone who, who was their partner or their husband. Um, so whilst, we're, whilst we appear to be making some progress or putting in, um, I guess, some steps that we, you know, as, as a nation and on, and on a state level, whether or not those are actually... Um, achieving better outcomes or reducing violence, I don't know. We've seen awareness campaigns. Um, we, we see amazing organisations go out there and try and shift cultural issues, but that's not, that's not enough at this stage. So we need everyone to understand, I guess, how widespread it is, how it can happen to anyone, and, and I think from there we can start moving towards, I guess, reducing the, the stats that we're seeing. Thank you. Now, Jess, you're writing a whole book called – it's called See What You Made Me Do and it'll be released next year. Is that right? So looking at it from a big, big picture, what are we looking for? Well, I totally agree with what you're saying, Nora. And one of the things – the first things that I <clears throat> looked at when I was looking at how do we take, how do we take on this entire issue um, – was the national strategy to start, okay, well, what are we doing on a national level? And it's interesting, you put the national strategy against violence and then you put the national strategy against tobacco consumption and the national strategy against drinking and you see very different documents. And I sort of, you know, I described the national strategy against gendered violence as sort of like what we're trying to achieve is a feminist utopia. Um, there's, you know, having communities free from violence, having those sorts of like big statements, which are really, they're, they're lofty things to go for and they're, they're admirable to have as a societal sort of ambition. But right now, 
changing community attitudes and awareness campaigns, as North says, is not making a dent on the statistics at all. In fact, some of what's happening in response to that is a backlash effect of what a lot of the domestic violence helplines are noticing. So, so what I want to see, I guess, on that really, you know, big picture level is for us to be as brave with domestic violence as we've been with smoking legislation. And strawberries. And strawberries. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, where we were willing to take on Philip Morris to make those plain packages, we were willing to take them on two international courts, the, one of the biggest companies in the world. Now, in our domestic violence strategy, I don't see that same courage and I see that, I mean, I can't speak more highly of our Watch and Anne Rose in what they've done to establish an understanding and knowledge base. However, I think that there's part of a... It's a bit of a Faustian pact you make when you start to work with the government in the sense that you have to avoid certain things that maybe bring bring a little too close to home um, for politicians. So gender inequality is a good way to come at it because everyone can talk about gender. Who wouldn't want gender equality? Put your hand up. You know, no one's going to do that. Um, but well, Tony Abbott, maybe. <laughs> but when you start to talk about the larger issue of patriarchy and how control is the priority issue in our society and that then the politicians start shifting in their seats because they how do you how do you, how do they start talking about Hashtag how we need to not challenge? all men exactly how do we start how do we talk about having to challenge those sorts of attitudes um, but on that sort of you know what Bree's saying you know we need sort of things that are much more boiled down to how do we reduce it in the high risk areas how do we take the people that are at the highest risk and try to make them safe how do we take prevention not from the point of view of what we think men should respond to but what men actually will respond to um, men don't respond well to being shamed in fact I think shame is at a, you know at the heart of a lot of domestic violence um, a type of humiliated fury um, that a lot of abusive men have um, so I think we're we're not on the right track with prevention and we're probably just being a little too um, optimistic about the effect of community attitudes on the broader issue. Um, so there's a lot to do and, I mean, legislatively it just goes on and on. So, One of the things that happened when we were all chatting out in the green room was Bree said to me, we have to have time for audience questions. However, I'm chairing this session so I'm getting one more question in and then it will be your turn. If there was one action you would ask all of your female friends and male friends to take today, tomorrow, Monday, Tuesday, what would that action be? Hmm. I think we need better listening, so to listen. Um, because even though people find it easy to sympathise for me, they don't like to listen when I switch into my role as an advocate. Um, I have resistance from people who simply don't want to be a feminist. I have resistance from people who don't want to see me as a femi feminist. Um, listening can help us understand the intersections that affect people's lives and how they all play into one another. That is crucial in order to deliver the right kinds of services. Um, it's crucial in order to get legislative change um, and it's crucial in order to have the cultural things that we're talking about long term. Um, so I think for me probably that that listening is essential. I don't know how you make people do that. Um, I've spent so much time sharing my story um, and 
I, I don't, yeah, I, sometimes I'm optimistic. Other times I feel frustrated because I'm not just fighting um, patriarchy, but I'm often also worried about racism and backlashes and that makes me um, often hold back or think for a long time and um, before I say what I, what I feel. Um, so when we improve our listening, we give victims a space that they can step into and say, this is my story and this is my reality and then we can move towards getting the right funding and the right services in place to respond to those things. If we're not listening to people's realities, we're never going to get to a solution. Um, I wrote this week about um, some issues that affect culturally and linguistically diverse women in terms of accessing services. Um, there is still sometimes resistance about that. Um, people not understanding why different people from different cultural backgrounds might need a different service in order to... And, and I mean, refusing to listen to that at the risk of someone else's safety is just ridiculous to me, but it happens. Um, so I think that's, that's the, the crucial thing for me. That is a hard question and I like listen. But I also think talking is important. It's my job we talk and journalists can that that's our tool and I think um the Me Too movement has has shown I guess there is power in speaking out even though it might not create instant change there is a reason to do it because all those all those stories when they're sort of stacked up on top of each other may cause something positive to happen so I think um as much as I feel uncomfortable talking about what happened to my mum and my family I remind myself that if I don't talk about it, then who will? Um, and we've seen countless women die since that point. Um, but I think if, if, if I begin to talk and if we all begin to talk about it, then maybe in 10, 15 or 20 years' time, we would have saved a life. Um, so I think it's important for people who have, have experiences to be able to talk and then to be supported um, by the people around them. So we've had listening and talking. Jess, what about you? What's the action? Um, so, yeah, I think listening is a byword for a lot of things. And I, when you were saying that, I was thinking about if I was talking to male and female friends, you know, listening in their relationships because I think part of this is about intimacy and how we are actually able to deal with intimacy. And a lot of us don't deal with intimacy well and it's on a spectrum, right? Um, but when you're writing about domestic violence, you start reflecting on your own issues around intimacy and all the rest of it. It brings up a lot of difficult stuff for all of us. So I think men and women, um, we all need to start thinking about how we are intimate with each other um, and really and really do better in that area and pay more attention to it. A lot of what I've done in um, researching the way um, uh, Indigenous history worked with this, you know, when when the prison ships came and the settlers arrived, they saw Indigenous people here doing a lot of not much, a lot of talking, you know, oh, I talk all the time, they don't seem to do anything. That was the point. They actually did a lot of talking and a lot of rituals and a lot of ceremonies because they realised that emotions and intimacy and things was stuff you had to work on. It was not something that came naturally. It was not something that you just put in the background and expected to happen automatically. So that Indigenous model for how you develop intimacy and relationships is actually something we could learn a lot from. Um, but also on that listening, listening out for that person that you know that's just started to disappear a little or who's just started to say a few things that make you wonder about their relationship or so it seems like they're getting a bit isolated or even that person who complains about their relationship so often that you just want them to go away. Don't make them go away. 
because it might take years for them to realise that they're in an abusive relationship but it'll take a lot longer if all of their friends leave them alone. That's what you see time and again is people, women don't necessarily get isolated by their partners, they get isolated by their community because their community is sick of hearing about it. Um, so they're the two things I would recommend. Bree. Uh, three weeks ago, Queensland legislated um, to decriminalise abortion. Um, until then, we had been the most backwards. Now we are one of the most forwards. Um, and um, I did a bit of reporting around it um, until I left to go on holiday um, in October and met a lot of the women who had been fighting for that for like 20, 30 years um, and just like don't stop. Like you can get exhausted, you can feel burnt out but it's down, not out. Like there are so many women and in, in these days like decriminalising abortion in Queensland, was it's always been more of a class and, and geography issue than actually anything else because if you had enough money and lived in Brisbane you could just find a sympathetic doctor. But the situation is extremely different if you live in a small or regional town. So what it was effectively saying is that abortion is illegal for women out in country areas. Um, which, of course, then has a cultural element to it as well. Um, and so I feel like what just happened in Queensland is so huge and amazing and it has reignited an optimism and a hope. Um, and so it's easy to feel, um, yeah, really fatigued and to really feel down and hopeless and that these issues are so big. Um, and it's difficult in... The, you know, the, the focus of my work is more on sexual violence rather than um, domestic and family violence. And it's been really tricky to um, figure out how to factor in the fact that women are more likely to make complaints now. And so how do we deal with statistics that show that offending is sort of on the rise, but actually what's more likely is that people are making more complaints and then you feel really disheartened by that. And you think, well, is that what prog progress looks like? Um, but just don't stop. Like, just keep going because it might take longer than you want. It will always take longer than you want, but eventually you get there and people's whole lives are bettered for it. Everything takes longer than we actually want. New South Wales next in terms of decrim, everybody. So I'm looking for questions. Um, I think something was said about um, the problematic thing of having conversations with men and feeling like you're shaming them or humiliating them and not getting enough of a response. I was wondering if any of you had any advice for entering conversations with men and how to treat them and kind of work together on this issue. Jess, can you oh, talk? Yeah, about right. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I, just as a, as a background, my partner has helped me a lot with this because writing this book made me very angry. Um, <laughs> and, um, Shout out. Yeah, David up the back. Yeah. Um, he's been an essential part of realising that there's two strands to this issue, not just the women who are being victimised but the men who are victimising. Um, and that's, I mean, obviously there's non-binary stuff and there's, you know, stuff in the LGBTQI community that we're not talking about right now. But um, so I really had to come around from thinking like, well, just, you know, you should just, eat it because you're all causing so much trouble, you know. Um, that's obviously not going to work. Um, I think that often we can err on shaming guys for not knowing enough or not thinking enough about these issues. But I think the first thing to realise is that they're not in a milieu like this 
very often, except for the few guys who are here. Hats off. Um, <laughs> um, but they're not talking about these issues. It's just like things that they talk about a lot that we don't know enough about, you know. Um, it just so happens that this is a really important thing they should know about. But if we come at them like, oh, men, where are all the men? Why aren't they saying this? Why aren't they saying, you know, why, don't you know that it's, you know, uh, that it's dangerous for women to walk through parks? Don't you know that we all hold keys? It's like... No, they don't know. They don't know that. They don't know. And maybe we should just approach them like we're in this moment, right, where if they're expressing interest in knowing, take that as like, okay, all right, well, let's let's work with that. Let's work with the defensiveness that you're going to get because you are going to get defensive. Um, but do it in such a way that's that's kind and going towards a place of wanting to reach a common understanding, not just shove it down their throats, which is tempting sometimes, you know, some of the responses you get. But I find that – and I've been really fortunate. I A lot of women who are writing in this area have been um, harassed and trolled in some of the most horrific ways. I've not been one of those people, but I have had my share of trolls online. And often I just sort of go right to them and just go – What's, what's happened with you? Because what you're coming at with me is really ugly. And just turn it back on them. And it's amazing. Then they'll come back with all this stuff. And I've ended up having some really productive conversation with people who came at with me with vitriol um, because they just wanted to have some part of being listened to and not feeling like they were the bad guy from the outset. That's really worked. And we've actually had really productive conversations. So I don't know. That's, that's all I can say from my experience. I would just like to add one thing. I meant I said talking earlier, but I what my experience told me there are some men they don't want to know. They don't want to know and you can talk and talk and talk and they will never listen. Um, and I think they're a lost cause and don't waste your breath. Don't waste your breath trying to change the views of a couple of men around you because they're set they're they're probably set in their ways and they're not gonna change. Um and I think it's sometimes it's best to look at the big picture because you might not be able to change the few men around you, but if you if you if you set the bar higher than that um, and you use your voice in a in a more productive way, then you probably will have better outcomes that same that same premise goes for domestic violence perpetrators you know there are some men who will you'll be able to reform and who will go towards something better there are some men who will never ever change they'll abuse one woman after the next you know so i think it's the same sort of reflection across the board in that way I just wanted to bring in, because I spoke about health a little bit earlier, um, there is a trauma aspect to this that I'm very conscious of because speaking to males for me has been just a very negative experience. Um, very early on, a family member asked me why I was making my mum's murder about gender. Um, I realised very quickly where my energy was worth being expended and where it wasn't. Um, I've been invited to speak to male audiences in juvenile justice systems. I'm not ready to do that. I don't feel like I can look at a room of young men in a prison and educate them using my own lived experience of trauma inflicted by someone similar to them, okay? Um, so I think we need to be mindful of who has the privilege of being able to have those conversations and who doesn't. Um, I, don't, I don't choose to have conversations with men who don't want to listen. Um, I'm lucky to have a very supportive and understanding partner and I shouldn't have to say I'm lucky to have that. That should be the norm. Um, and... Yeah, it's about, I guess, realising that not everyone can do that 
type of um, change. I'm not optimistic about speaking to men. I'd rather help women and give them the tools they need to feel empowered. And I would say that my inbox is a sign for great conversations. I get hundreds of emails a week from men who are angry with me. And I now have a little kind of pro forma. I also send them a reading list and I go, (laughs) get back to me after you finish the reading list and we can have an educated conversation. I've never had anyone come back to me. Just quick, super quickly, sorry, just to be um, to be a bit more specific about what I know about and to drill down on what Noor's just mentioned about not wasting time on lost causes. The, the inverse is also true in my experience where it's really can be quality over quantity. In the first sort of 24 or 48 hours after someone is offended against, the way they sort of might start trying to talk about that with their friend or their partner or their like anyone, the first sort of couple of people they reach out to and how those individuals respond can have a huge impact on whether or not they then go on to to make a police complaint or whatever doing something about it looks like for them. And so in that moment, all you need is one good dude. And so I have... I think it's um, absolutely – it makes it even more important basically to know a lost cause and to be able to allocate your resources to finding the the good ones who might – like a gold seam and then you have to tap it Um, and you have to like drill down and convert them because if they happen to be one of the people who's turned to in that sort of first 48 hours, that can like change the whole trajectory of the way someone deals with what has happened to them. And I think we have a question here. Uh, sorry, the lady who wrote, who's writing the book, Jessica. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so basically, when we have like all of our forms of domestic violence, we have our physical, we have our um, financial, even our sexual. They're all kind of tangible. Like you, you can see the the outcome from that. Uh, but when we have our emotional abuse. There's nothing, no one can actually physically see it, they can't touch it, they can't grasp it. Someone who's actually been through every form of abuse from my marriage, um, I can guarantee that emotional was absolutely the worst. How do you plan to write that, to be able to capture that and capture that big black shadow that kind of goes over emotional abuse where it it can be seen more so? Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's that's um, the first chapter of the the book is called The Perpetrator's Handbook um, and it's basically talking about the fact that, you know, although there are, there are differences in the way that perpetrators behave, um, they're basically all the same um, when it comes down to it. Um, and so I go through um, a number of different behaviours or tactics depending on how conscious the abuser is um, that starts with isolation, then goes to monopolising your perception, which is basically through isolation, making everything about your world sort of come back through him, Um, then goes down through degradation, through alternating kindness with punishment. In the whole scheme of things, there's no physical violence in there. Um, and in fact, the the model of coercive control, which has been established since the um, since the 1970s, um, the model of coercive control looks across domestic violence, across kidnap, pr- prisoners of war, hostage situations. Physical violence is the least part of that model. So that's how I'm actually presenting it. 
physical violence is just the thing that holds the rest of the model in place or the threat of physical violence. It only has to be believable that something could happen to you um, in order for all of those things to be held in place and for the person to be held in a type of captivity mentally. Um, so I agree with you. I think, you know, I know we parcel out emotional abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse, all the rest of it, but they're all just bits and pieces in the same schema. Um, and it's like, you know, different perpetrators will pick different bits up depending on what kind of person they are. Um, plenty of perpetrators would never think to lay a hand on their, their wife but are some of the most controlling and abusive people you could ever meet. And they would look at other abusive guys who are physically violent and be disgusted, you know. So um, so that's a big part but also no, like noting how in that um, thing – it's really difficult for women to even realise they're being abused in that because the whole web of abuse, there are so many different strands to it that are keeping you in a state of almost like surreal parallel universe. Um, so, yeah, I hope that answers your question. And I think that that level of strategizing that women do, the minute-to-minute -minute calculations that women are making in, in relationships is something that's not understood and that's because women are seen as, as it's a bit of a two-to-tango type thing rather than as seen as a target. That that's the first three chapters of my book basically unpick all of that um, and definitely put, I mean, physical violence is extremely serious. But you're right, every single person I've spoken to has put physical violence at the end because they're like, you know what, the scars heal, but those memories don't go away of who I thought I was with that guy and what he told me I was. Can I just say thank you for sharing your story as well. I really appreciate that. I think we have a question here. Yep. Hi, um, thank you all for being so frank and persistent. It's really inspiring. Um, you've all touched on the importance of allowing women to share their stories. I've worked with survivors of slavery and trafficking with a fantastic organisation in Sydney. We had huge media interest, but all of it went away when we told them we wouldn't put our survivors in front of a camera. That's not a groundbreaking policy. I think most women's organisations take that view. How do we bridge that gap between allowing women to tell their stories and people needing to see a woman to understand that these issues are happening real and valid? I don't know what the answer is to that, but it's something we need to work on figuring out because with, with most stories, whether it's victims of child sexual abuse, victims of domestic violence, victims of slavery, um, the media is a very superficial space and to create TV, you need pictures. And when decisions are being made, um, if you don't have a face or a picture to show, the boss is simply not interested because what are we going to play on the TV for those two minutes when that story appears? And that really sucks. I think one of the things we need to do, though, is to recognise that the personal has always been really political. And if we can get the personal story, that's going to have a thousand times bigger impact on ordinary um, uh, people than, you know, a political discussion or a policy discussion. I would also say that um, assisting people to be able to talk is really an important thing and perhaps Renata can talk briefly about that project. Um, anyone else got any answers to this? I'll just have a corollary to that, that, that issue. Um, 
you know, in family court reporting, there's a um, legislative section 121 which says that basically you cannot identify any party to proceedings. That's basically scotched family court reporting entirely in Australia. Um, and when I set out to start reporting on family court and telling these stories, um, other journalists looked at me like I was mad. Um, and the idea of getting anything on something like Four Corners was just forget it, you know. And that was even if you had survivors with blacked out faces. So that was even having a story but not being able to show the face. As Noor saying, the telly's just not interested. Um, so it's that really delicate balance, I guess, between protecting the people that you are, you know, protecting, um, but understanding that the way through to the public's heart it's it's only got their through story and that's been the same way for thousands of years you know it's almost like we it's un and it's it's unalterable is what it feels like and we could try harder to do things around it but you're just still going to be like a story way down the list and people are not going to remember it it's just unfortunately the way it is can i add to that please um i think this also goes back to the structural issues that we face I'm only able to be here with a microphone in my hand because I do have um, an educational background. I was empowered before my mum was murdered. Um, I was able to navigate the issues about the media because of the resources that I already had. Um, and I, my sister is part of that as well. And for other women, they can't even be in a position to share their story. So when we make them the subject of a story, um, they're coming from quite a vulnerable place. My, I guess what, what would be ideal is that every woman be given the access that's necessary to be able to tell that story herself eventually um, as the narrator. Um, and I think that's an important thing. We, put, we should be putting those microphones in their hands when they're ready to share that story rather than trying to make it about them um, to achieve whatever we want to achieve. And I'm going to do something unusual now. I'm going to ask Renata, who's going to tell us a little bit about herself and give us an answer to this very vexed problem. Hi, everyone. Um, so, yeah, my name is Renata. I am um, just recently started working at Domestic Violence New South Wales and we were lucky enough to get a grant from Watch, which is the National Prevention Organisation to End Violence Against Women and Their Children. And the grant is called Voices for Change. So we're doing a project um, where we'll train a group of women with lived experience of violence to speak up publicly about their stories. And the, um, the idea is that they'll get the support and um, we can navigate some of the issues that people have been bringing up here that around safety, um, around triggers that can come up if you do that type of work um, and also being a bit of a, a buffer, a middle guy between the media and the, the people with lived experience so that uh, they're not the ones getting the call at six in the morning, it'll be me and then I can um, pass those phone um, numbers and those details on um, and try and um, ensure that people are in a sort of fairly stable, safe place to be able to participate. Um, so we're really lucky to have Jenna on our steering committee, um, but we are still looking for different people to get involved and to support it in different ways. Um, the first training is going to happen in February um, and we'll also be looking, of course, for people to participate. So um, I'll be around. If anyone's interested in being involved in different ways, um, also to um, navigate uh, getting those stories heard within the media is really integral. Thank you. Do I have any other questions from the audience? Yes. Um, thank you. I think this leads on from what we were just talking about. Um, so we know that the media in general has a pretty bad track record in terms of how it 
presents different types of violence against women that's been documented for decades now. And I think, you know, Jane Gilmore's um, current work shows us on an almost daily basis that um, that the, the media in Australia continues to um, present violence against women in quite problematic ways. At the same time, there are countless um, guidelines available for journalists in how to actually... Um, report on these issues. I know that because I wrote one myself that was routinely ignored. Um, so I guess my question is, uh, firstly, why do the media in, in general in Australia seem to be so reluctant or resistant to, to change and adopting these best practice principles? Um, and what can we be doing to actually help improve how we're talking about the issue? You've probably been you've been working in in the media for longer than I have. Maybe you've seen a, a bigger, of. a greater progression. Maybe I, I, I'm yeah. I think definitely through. I, I totally agree. There's parts of the media that are total recalcitrance, and um, <clears throat> I think since 2014 we've seen at least an improvement, and and I guess at, at least more of a mindfulness about how to do this from from various parts of the media. It's difficult. I sat on the press council sort of panel for getting guidelines around reporting for DV and there's a resistance from journalists to having particular guidelines that are binding because of what we've seen around guidelines for suicide for example which basically has seen suicide not being reported on at all um so I I really wanted to see with the press council or with any guidelines that come out that there be a sustained education campaign that people go out and they go into newsrooms and train journalists one by one. That sort of feels like the only way that can happen where those journalists next time they're writing a story uh, just like have that training in their head and they know that there are just certain things to avoid. Well, I, I agree. I mean, I was almost oblivious to the flaws um, that existed around reporting about violence towards women before it, I, I sort of was forced to, to see it. In the years since, I think there have been improvements. Um, I know I've sought out guidelines when I to understand why I felt uncomfortable with the reporting that existed around my family, but also um, to make myself feel comfortable that if anyone ever gives me the opportunity to share their story, I want to make sure that absolutely nothing about my work contributes more to their trauma or skews the story, um, so they're helpful. But I do think there needs to be a more uh, deliberate and concerted effort to make sure that all journalists know best practice reporting, I guess. Um, and I, I'm sure it's probably happening in universities now and in workplaces. It just We just need to make sure that we are asking for it and we are pushing for it. Um, I don't know how else we might be able to shift that. I mean, it's going to take time, but, yeah, it needs to happen in, in the workplaces where where the problems exist. And there's one other thing we need to do and is not to be clicking on those stories. That headline that you find offensive, <laughs> don't click on it. Don't share it. Don't. So it's, it's definitely a journalist's responsibility and it's also an audience responsibility. And right to the newsroom, definitely. I'm, I mean, seriously, I'm the worst. I'm often ringing newsrooms and going, what are you thinking? Why haven't you got the helpline down the bottom? Look how you've talked about this person. Honestly, I've turned into a chook. However, um, I think it's something you can all do is to take part and take action. Now, I think we've got... Brie, did you want to say something? Yeah, just as um, I enjoyed a lot of 
to a to a greater extent than a lot of people, um, especially compared to you two, um, a lot of control over the way my story was released because I literally wrote the book about it. Um, and yet, in coverage, even in pieces that I would mostly write or do a huge interview for, the headlines were what really fucked me over sometimes. The difference between a headline like my secret shame and an ABC headline that was like, what happens when a survivor gets angry and hopeful? Like uh, to, to wake up and see my face and name beside a headline A compared to headline B is huge. It's also huge for the way people who have, for that was the first time they'd seen me and were coming to what my story was about, had a huge impact on how that sort of story was was shaped whether it was one of control like defiance and and hopefulness or whether it was something about shame and yuck and like why would you put your face to that um the headlines in particular um which and it's shocked me in the last sort of three years of being a writer full-time to realize that even when I write pieces that are about completely separate things and I've written a great article or what I hope is a good article and then I don't even get told that the headline has changed, you know, 20 minutes before it goes live. Um, the headlines, I don't know what happens there. It's like they it's just... It's called trying to get the audience engaged. It sucks, Very real bad. Now, I've got time for one more question, if there is one, a brief question. Is there anyone? Oh, David's got a question. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Thanks. And just wanted to really encourage the woman who asked the question about speaking to guys. I work as a psychotherapist and so many men I work with, they cannot for the life of them even identify what it is to have a feeling, to even name one. So, <laughs> and the men are the people who are doing this, so really got to get to them. Um, but on patriarchy, I'm just wanting a strategic question. Um, do you present the work you're doing on domestic violence as part of confronting that? Or is that just too heavy and are you better flying under the radar? I do. I try to purposely include something about patriarchy anytime I'm given an opportunity to write a speech or an article, if I can. Um, I know in the editing process, sometimes words like resisting Islamophobia, resisting patriarchy um, can be too in your face. And then I ask for them to be put back in um, because I, I, you know, I, I guess I know the value of my story and the value of having it told authentically. Um, so I actually try to navigate those things and if I can, I give feedback on the headline as well. Um, when it comes back, I've illustrated pieces for the ABC and in that process I also said I'm going to be trauma-informed about this. I'm not going to just draw another woman with a bruise on her face and a man with a beard shouting at her. So I try to um, do that consistently throughout so that I'm not just doing isolated work. I'm, I'm addressing patriarchy directly. These two sisters are agreeing on a lot. I bet it wasn't like that 30 years ago. <laughs> Bree, what about you? Um, yeah, what's really interesting is that um, when I talk about um, the legal industry being sexist, like being a uh, product of the patriarchy, people are like, oh, yeah, okay, all right, maybe. Like, I can see that. You know, like the bar is a bit of a boys' club and, like, there are more men than women judges. Like, sure. When I talk about the justice system being a product of the patriarchy and sexist, people get really uncomfortable and really defensive and really um, upset when because we just have this 
collective like um, falsely built idea of this like blind lady scales of justice that we have this system that is um, that can find truth that is a faultless sort of indicator instead of seeing a system as a composition of the people who create and perpetuate it which is a patriarchy um and so I um, sometimes do and I sometimes don't. And I just make that decision based on trying to be strategic. Um, you know, and it's that, that thing, like if I, if I know that I'm speaking to people who are like, um, you know, like I've nearly got them, then maybe I can throw that in. Um, but if you're speaking to a new audience, um, it, sometimes I think it, it would sort of spook them. Um, so, yeah, I do a bit, a bit of both. I love spooking them, but Jess, what about yeah, you? <laughs> I was very reticent about spooking um, when I first started writing the book. But I've got to say, the Me Too movement has totally changed the game on what you can say around this stuff and how well it's received. Um, patriarchy is not a scary word as much as it was a couple of years ago. I actually felt... So when I first started writing the book, I had a structure. I was going to include a chapter on gender and then I was like, oh, I'll just weave that through the book. And then in the last few months after Me Too and all the rest of it ended up being a chapter on patriarchy and the point of that is to say that this is not gender inequality. Gender inequality is a symptom of patriarchy but when we talk about gender inequality people go, oh yeah, but so that female judge made that decision. Well, she's a woman. It's like she's a woman in patriarchy and if you don't understand patriarchy as an overarching premise then you can't actually see what's wrong with the system. Um, so... And patriarchy explains so much of where the men are coming from in their abusiveness. Um, whereas gender inequality doesn't really do much to explain that. It doesn't it, – it goes to the ideas of power and control. Men want power and control over women so they abuse them. But the question then, then follows is, but why do they want power and control? And that's what patriarchy answers. So I've decided to just spook the people who are – <laughs> Bookable, um, and, um, but, but say everyone? it loud and proud and reclaim it for the movement <clears throat> in my own small way because I think we've become a little too PC on the gender inequality train. I think it's, it's time to bring patriarchy back as a concept. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to do something really naughty now. Uh, this is called Spoiler. I'm reading you the last three paragraphs of Bree Lee's book. Uh, and I did ask permission beforehand. So what do you do in the days and weeks that follow when you're hanging out the washing on those rusty steel lines and your arms lock up and you're dizzy under the hot summer sun, when your knees buckle and you rest your forehead on the scalding concrete while you catch your breath, when every man who yells at you on the street is pushing you onto your back again and every grabby hand at a party makes you feel belly up and frozen again? What do you do in the months and years that follow when winning the battle has only opened your eyes to the breadth of the war? You cry and you cry and when you're done crying, you wipe your eyes and you slap your cheeks and you get angry and you get to work. Can we please thank our panellists? This is a recording from the Feminist Writers Festival 2018, Sydney. We'd like to acknowledge that the festival was held on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. 
We'd also like to thank our partner, the UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. Enjoy the podcast and connect with us on social media or via the FWF website, feministwritersfestival.com. If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgy, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, and many, many, many more sessions of the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney yet to come. So jump on onto our website and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals. They're a really important part of our writing, reading and living community.